there's a zillion variations of house music. You know, there, there's deep house and hard house and tech house. and then there's In the remote part of the Northern Rockies, in a town nestled between two national forests in western Montana, there's a guy who knows everything there is to know about techno. There's all the drum and bass variants like tech step and liquid and neurofunk and breakcore and drill and bass. His name is Chris Henry, and he owns Ear Candy Music, a record store based in Missoula, Montana. Ear Candy specializes in brand new vinyl records, the kind DJs use. Chris started selling records nearly 20 years ago, a few years after he first moved to Missoula. But what originally got him to move there was an accident. Back in 1993, Chris was directionless. He was trying to decide what to study in college and where. One day, Chris was making small talk with his friend's mom at her kitchen table. I said, I don't, you know, maybe I'll do a creative writing degree. And at the time, Missoula had the number one undergraduate creative writing program in the U.S. Wow. And she's like, oh, my God, you got to go to Missoula. They got a great program. My brother's a lawyer there. And I said, how do you know about Missoula? She's like, honey, I'm from there. That conversation stuck with Chris. He eventually made his way to Missoula to get that creative writing degree. That's where he found his people. A mix of ranchers, artists, backpackers, and environmentalists. Chris says it's a whole community of folks who don't care about pretense or status. He loves it there. So after graduation, Chris decided to stay in Missoula. And much to his own surprise, he found himself running a business there. In classic Missoula style, it wasn't about starting a business. It was about staying in Missoula. (laughs) I'm John Henry, and this is Open for Business, a branded podcast from eBay and Gimlet Creative about building a business from the ground up. There's been a lot of talk in the past year about how economic opportunities in some parts of the country are disappearing. Last year, a pro-business think tank called the Economic Innovation Group released a study. They found that between 2010 and 2014, just five cities accounted for half of net new business growth. Those cities were L.A., New York, Miami, Houston, and Dallas. That means that if you look at all the businesses people started during that time and then subtract all the businesses that closed, half of that leftover number came from just those five major metro areas. In this episode, we want to talk about businesses outside those places, the other 50%. What can we learn from entrepreneurs in smaller cities and towns around the country? So today on the show, we're bringing you stories and lessons about how to make the most of wherever you are. For many people looking to start a business, uprooting their whole lives to move to New York or LA isn't an option, and they may not want to. Running a business in a smaller community means the real estate is cheaper, the cost of labor is lower, and there's less competition. Plus, if you start a business online, you don't need to physically be where your customers are. Say you happen to fall in love with Missoula, Montana, like Chris. You can just go into business with your raver friends. After college, Chris moved into a house with a bunch of friends who were also really into Montana's music scene. They were in bands and, you know, we had all thrown raves together and stuff like that. So it was a group of people that I was uh, doing kind of creative stuff with. One random day, a record store opened across the street from their house. So me and my friends were like, oh, hey, new record store. We went over and, and checked it out. 
It was uh, a guy broke away from a local record store. He was definitely more of a rock guy. So we just kind of got to talking with him and he said, hey, I really, I really need someone to do hip hop and electronic like DJ vinyl. Are you guys interested? And, and me and my friend kind of looked at each other and kind of shrugged our shoulders and figured, what the hell, let's give it a shot. Sounds like fun. Let's give it a shot. Sounds like fun. So Chris and a friend walked into this random guy's record store, and that's how they started their business, which is a really weird way to start a business. But hey, that's Missoula. And somehow it's kept on going. I mean, that was, yikes, almost 20 years ago. Today, Chris and the original owner still share the same brick-and-mortar record store, but they each sell their own inventory and keep their profits separate. Chris alone does about $400,000 in revenue each year. And he told us that 70% of that happens on eBay. Doing this kind of business, selling little-known records and getting to do it from a place he loves, none of that would have been possible for Chris without the internet and e-commerce. Ever since Chris got on eBay in 2005, he noticed that people all over the world love getting their neurofunk and breakcore vinyl from a record store in the middle of nowhere in Montana. It's become part of Chris's marketing strategy. He calls it the Montana angle. Doing the sort of high-end subgenre, sort of niche culture stuff that I do, uh, we definitely push the Montana angle just because it's that much more surprising and unique and, and, and that much more likely to stick in someone's head. I've watched other sellers over the years, and there's some that are just put like USA, you know? Huh. Whereas me, I put Missoula, Montana, and people will be like, I can't believe I found this record at a record store in Montana. Like, <laughs> where are you guys at? Montana? What? So it sounds like you then have been kind of intentionally thinking about how to incorporate where you are into your brand to help you sell online. Well, yeah. And it's always, you know, it's the thing with competition. It's either it's differentiation or competing on price. And if you're running a small business in the middle of nowhere, you're not going to compete with price. Of course. Right. So instead you got differentiation. That brings us to lesson number one, make your location a part of your brand. It helps your company stand out from the competition and it can resonate with potential customers, especially online where buying and selling can sometimes feel anonymous and impersonal. After decades of selling both online and off, Chris knows just how powerful lesson number one can be. He even sends custom-made ear candy music postcards to his customers to remind them where their records come from. It makes people feel like they've discovered something unique and special. Because who doesn't want to say that they got their niche techno music from a record store tucked away in the mountains of Montana? Roughly 2,000 miles away in a middle-class suburb of Detroit called Oak Park, Marty Babayov runs the Suit Depot, a menswear store that specializes in, you guessed it, suits. Marty's only 25, but he's already been in business for several years. He started the company back when he was still a teenager, living at home with his parents. So my first storefront was actually located in my bedroom, believe it or not. Wow, like, like literally people were walking in there? Yeah, people were just walking in there. Luckily, it has its own side door over there, so uh, they didn't get the trek through the house. It, because it's a small community, if you lived in New York City and you put up signs, hey, I've got suits, 
come on, see me in my bedroom and try them on, I, someone would probably call the cops on you. Right, um, right. You know, here, luckily, I guys l- looked at it. Some some of them knew me, some didn't. <laughs> you know, word travels and people were coming in and uh, shopping. Word travels especially fast in Marty's neighborhood. He's an Orthodox Jew, and so are nearly all of his neighbors. Orthodox Jews are Sabbath observant, um, and they don't use electricity or cars or any of that on Sabbath. So therefore, they all have to be within walking distance of a synagogue. Um, So the community is all located within probably two square miles. Um, There's about 1,500 families within those two square miles. Um, The street I'm on is, you know, 95% Orthodox Jews. It's got an element basically of a large family, I guess. Um, At times, it feels like it could be a little bit nosy. Everybody sort of knows what's going on in your, your personal life. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, there's, you know, there's upsides to it and downsides. What are some of the upsides and downsides? Well, the upsides is the tighter knit the community is, the more you can spread the word when you're trying to get into business, you're trying to sell a product. You can just print a couple papers, put in a couple of the local stores, and the whole Jewish community is going to know within 24 hours. Um, on the downside, anything you do, the whole Jewish community is going to know within 24 hours. <laughs> Marty's not exaggerating. When he bought a house last year, his mom heard about it from her friends before Marty had a chance to tell her the news. This word of mouth came in handy when Marty started his first business. Marty was 17 years old and he had already been selling on eBay for years when he realized he wanted to focus on suits. So what got you into suits specifically? Oh, I didn't wear the suits for the first few years. I actually wore really baggy cargo pants and uh, oversized button-ups. But uh, That's funny. what really attracted me about suits, I guess, was it's a niche. I'm looking for something that I could dominate the market in. Um, I'm looking for an area where I can find all the weaknesses and address them. T-shirts, it's too broad. Everybody wears them. Everybody sells them. Um, I'm looking for a much smaller market. At this point, Marty knew more about baggy cargo shorts than how to sell suits. He still had a lot to learn before he could even think about dominating the market. I didn't have the majority of what people needed. Um, I didn't have the styles they needed. I, it was just very, very limited. I thought I could open a suit store with uh, less than 100 suits. <laughs> There's 30 suit sizes, so that tells you there you know, how much that is. You can't open a suit store with 100 suits, but you can start selling them online. So Marty grew the Suit Depot on eBay while he tried breaking into traditional brick-and-mortar retail. And even though some of Marty's early efforts at being a business owner were more successful than others, his customers kept coming back. When you jump into something new um, that you don't know, and you're going to have to learn through trial and error. And now if you're going to jump in and open a business and make those mistakes, it's very hard to get rid of that image. Oh, you know, they're a sloppy business. Um, On the other hand, when you're In a community, they're very forgiving. So if we don't have what they're looking for, oh, no problem, just give me a call when you do get it, you know. When you're dealing on a local level, people like to deal with somebody they feel like they know. This gets at our second lesson. In a smaller, more tight-knit community, you can use your network to experiment, get feedback, and use that feedback to iterate over time. Opening a business in that kind of environment with customers who may know you personally can mean that you have more time to land on the right business model for you. That's how it worked out for Marty. Um, many customers are just walking in now and they're like, wow, you know, it's, it's, things have changed. Like I thought, you know, I didn't realize, you know, how much the model had changed, how much the merchandise, everything had changed, and they're coming back to give it a second chance and they're just totally blown away by the difference from what they first encountered and what they're seeing now. Marty's customers are so loyal Some of them stop by the store just to hang out and catch up on what's going on in the neighborhood. 
He even has customers who started out buying suits from him online, but now drive hours just to visit the Suit Depot in person. In just a few years, the Suit Depot went from Marty's teenage bedroom to a successful online store with an 11,000 square foot storefront. The Suit Depot now does over $2 million in sales a year. Marty has bigger plans too. He's developing special software that will make managing the Suit Depot's e-commerce even faster and easier. And he's planning on expanding the store in the near future. Marty hasn't told many people about his plans yet, but he figures everyone probably already knows anyway. Word travels fast in Oak Park. Coming up, two young entrepreneurs face their fears. I remember like my knees trembling and I remember being really nervous that because I was wearing a dress, you could see my knees um, shaking. After the break, pitching your music startup to the biggest names in Music City, USA. Welcome back to the show. We're talking about running a company outside of New York City, Los Angeles, and the other major U.S. hubs for entrepreneurship. How do you make the most of wherever your company is located? To find out, we talked with two young entrepreneurs in Nashville. Nashville, Music City, USA, located in the heart of Tennessee, home to hot chicken, Southern hospitality, and of course, music. Nashville is also one of the places in the country where entrepreneurship is on the rise. A recent report from the Brookings Institution found that young companies in Nashville have had a sizable increase in hiring since about 2010. Specifically, between 2010 and 2015, the number of people employed by companies who've been around less than five years increased by 24%. That puts Nashville in the top five cities in the country for hiring among startups. It's not quite a hub for new business yet, but it looks like it's on its way. At least these two entrepreneurs sure hope so. My name is Mackenzie Stokel, and I am the co-founder and chief operating officer of Evamore. My name is Channing Moreland. I am co-founder and chief executive officer of Evamore. Evamore is actually Mackenzie and Channing's second company, and they never would have landed on the idea for it if they hadn't embraced everything Nashville has to offer. Mackenzie and Channing met in 2012 as freshmen at Belmont, a college in Nashville's Music Row neighborhood. They bonded over their love of organizing parties with live music and going to see concerts. But Mackenzie and Channing kept missing their favorite musicians because they didn't hear about the shows until after they had already happened. And we were just kind of talking away at dinner. And I remember we were like, why is this so hard? Like, why are we always missing out? And there needs to be a better way to do this. And, you know, maybe we should do it. Like, what if we just changed the way that this happened? And then we kind of looked at each other and we we're like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> That's how they came up with the idea for their first business. They wanted to make a social network that would tell people which musicians were in town and when, and then connect them to other people with similar taste in music so they could all go to the show together. Mackenzie and Channing had the concept, but they needed a name, so they picked one. 
a name they now regret. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> so Nashville is kind of a music hub, and we wanted to show people what's happening. So we kind of just made a word, and <laughs> what's, hubbin? what's Hubbin was born. Their next step was entering What's Hubbin into a business competition at their school. In the final round, contestants would pitch a panel of local entrepreneurs with their big idea. The grand prize was $5,000. Mackenzie and Channing made it to the last round. They practiced their pitch for weeks, but still, standing there in front of the judges was nerve-wracking. Looking back, I, I remember like my knees trembling, and I remember being really nervous that because I was wearing a dress, you could see my knees um, shaking. And it's one thing you know, to just be pitching about something that you believe in, but another thing to have judges there who are highly regarded in the town and have been asked to come in, you know, watch you and ask questions and judge you. So that was definitely horrifying. <laughs> it might have been horrifying for them, but the judges loved it. Channing and McKenzie's pitch won the grand prize. What's Hubbin was $5,000 closer to being a real company. But Channing says that getting the check wasn't nearly as important as what happened afterward. What was really, I think, pivotal for us were the judges came up to us afterwards. And I remember one of them and, you know, he not only asked great questions, but he was just like, you guys are really onto something. And he was also the one who recommended us for Project Music. And that started at that business plan competition. Project Music was the first music-focused tech accelerator in the U.S. It's a full-time, 14-week program and startups from all over the country compete to get in. If your company is accepted into Project Music, you receive $30,000 in seed money right on the spot. And every startup gets a designated team of five or six mentors, each of whom bring the expertise they've developed through decades in the music business. In 2014, Project Music was brand new. Channing was back at home in Boston over winter break when she got the call about their application. I was standing in my kitchen with my dad and I saw that the director of Project Music was calling me and I like freaked out and ran into the other room, but I was secretly really scared that they were saying we weren't getting in. And I answered the phone and he congratulated us and asked if we would accept a position with the inaugural class of Project Music. And I was so pumped, but I said I needed to talk with Mackenzie first. So got off the phone with him, called her, and that was awesome. <laughs> we, I both think we were like screaming, jumping up and down, just really excited because we, you know, had to fight through a lot of other applications to get there, but we definitely felt like badasses <laughs> for getting in. What's Hubbin got in? But the first thing Mackenzie and Channing learned was that What's Hubbin wasn't going to make it out. When we were talking to the director of Project Music, you know, he was like, I think what you guys have done is incredible, but you should really think about, you know, scalability and what is a great business model. And we knew, I mean, we had been hearing some hard questions when pitching What's Hubbin. And we knew that it was hard to try and make money off of that concept. And on day two, we changed our business. We were like, yep, we are openly saying we are pivoting on day two of Project Music and we're going to figure this out. That's when they pivoted to their second business, the one they run today, Evamore. Channing and Mackenzie realized that their first idea was too broad. They pivoted away from the social network for anyone who loves music 
and decided to focus on people who needed to book live music for events like college parties, corporate retreats, or weddings. At the end of the 14 weeks, Mackenzie and Channing pitched even more in front of hundreds of people. At the place where event producers, emerging artists, and the music industry intersect, there is a company whose purpose speaks directly to the need of each industry category. It's called Eva Moore. And please welcome the founders of Eva Moore, Channing Moreland and Mackenzie Stoker. This time around, there were no shaking knees in sight. We're automating the process of booking live music. A further way to look at this is like Expedia is for the travel industry, Eva Moore is that for the music industry. In the two years since that pitch, Eva Moore's valuation has more than tripled. And they're thinking about doing a round of Series A financing either later this year or early next. Something like 25 colleges now use the platform, and Eva Moore has established partnerships with major booking agencies throughout the country. According to Channing and McKenzie, one reason for their success is the fact that they're based in Nashville. They launched a music startup in a town deeply rooted in the music business. This may sound counterintuitive at first, but instead of being crushed by the competition, Channing and McKenzie found Nashville's music industry was one of their biggest assets. It gave them access to up-and-coming musicians, an existing customer base of music fans, and institutional support, like Project Music. Channing and McKenzie used Nashville's music industry as a springboard. And this gets at lesson number three. Play to your community's strengths. Every city or town has them. Look around you. Ask yourself, what makes this place different? And how can I use that to my advantage? In Nashville, the music industry is one of those strengths. But so is healthcare. In fact, at $40 billion a year, healthcare is Nashville's single biggest industry. If you take the same amount of capital and, quite frankly, the same amount of talent in the founder and the team, and they are doing a healthcare business versus doing some other type of business, let's say a social network. The healthcare business in Nashville is going to have a significantly better chance of being successful. This is Marcus Whitney, an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville. It's his job to find the companies that are going to be successful in the healthcare space and invest in them. They have the additional benefit of the very, very strong cluster of healthcare companies uh, that's here. And that cluster provides mentorship, uh, provides guidance on product market fit, uh, and also can be customers. Marcus is a big believer in lesson number three. He co-founded a venture capital fund called Jumpstart Foundry. They invest solely in healthcare startups because they found that in Nashville, healthcare startups perform much better than other types of startups. But he says there's another lesser known strength in Nashville, something that's key to the success of young entrepreneurs there and something that almost everyone we talked to told us about Nashville. There's sort of a golden rule that if someone asks you to have a cup of coffee, you kind of can't say no. This is one of Nashville's hidden strengths. There's music, there's healthcare. Those are quantifiable. They're known. But there's also something you can't measure, a sincere belief in the power of mentorship. Mackenzie says that was definitely true for Eva Moore. Nashville is such a community-based town that people want to help each other out. Every step of the way, mentors have guided Channing and Mackenzie as they've built even more. 
from the judge at their very first pitch competition who encouraged them to apply for Project Music and the advice that they got there, to the many big shot music promoters and agents who've taken the time to meet with them. You really can reach out to people at kind of top level jobs and they're more than likely willing to sit down and talk about their story and their journey and where they got started and help you kind of connect the dots on some of your thoughts and goals. Eva Moore has only been around for two years, but Channing and Mackenzie already feel that desire to give back and help other entrepreneurs get started. We're young and still new to this, but we're already even feeling how important it is to give back and to advise, you know, younger student entrepreneurs. So I think that there is something special about that cycle of the community importance in Nashville. And this is the real heart of lesson number three. In order to play to your community's strengths, you have to know what they are. They might not be obvious at first. They might not even be measurable, but they're there. And when you find them, use them to your advantage. Channing and Mackenzie aren't in New York or LA or any of the other places we listed at the top of the show. They're two young entrepreneurs building a company in a city they love. And they plan on staying there for years to come. So to recap today's lessons on how to make the most of wherever your business is located, lesson number one, make your location part of your brand. Don't be generic. Be authentic about where you live and work and how it sets you apart from other businesses. Customers will appreciate it. Lesson number two, in a smaller, more tight-knit community, it's more possible to experiment, test out your ideas, and iterate based on the results you're seeing. If your customers know you personally, they're more likely to keep coming back as your business grows and evolves. And finally, lesson number three, play to your community's strengths. Sometimes they're obvious and sometimes they're not. Keep looking. When you find them, use those strengths to your advantage. That's our show. To learn more, check out ebay.com slash open for business. You can also find the studies and research we referred to in the show notes on the Gimlet Creative website. Open for Business is a co-production of eBay and Gimlet Creative. We were produced this week by Francis Harlow, RMW, Nicole Wong, Caitlin Boguki, Abby Ruzika, and Grant Irving, with creative direction from Nazanin Rafsanjani. We were mixed this week by Zach Schmidt. Our theme song is by Wolfpack. Thanks so much to Christine Driscoll, and thank you to Eric Fishman, David Latimer, and Heather McBee. A very special thank you to Jim Grau. We couldn't have done this episode without you. And thank you to Clark Buckner at the Entrepreneur Center, who was instrumental in getting this episode off the ground. Thanks as well to Alan Baruby and Chad Shear of the Brookings Institution, Amanda Bird from the Economic Innovation Group, and Alan Elias of eBay's own Public Policy Lab. Next week on Open for Business, how to find your company's mission. How would you answer the question, what drives your company beyond making a profit? It's not as easy as it sounds. It's always been a challenge to really get those values off a postcard and into the day-to-day. So that, to me, was interesting, just coming into me and saying, okay, this is a company that feels like it really lives and breathes its culture, but have we actually gotten the values off the poster? That's coming up next week on Open for Business. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Open for Business on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps people discover our show. I'm John Henry. Thanks for listening.